This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. It's Black History Month, which gives us a good reason to talk with Gary Young about Barack Obama and his memoir, A Promised Land. It's been number one on the bestseller list for at least 10 weeks. Gary, of course, is an award-winning former columnist for The Nation. Now he's professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, a member of The Nation's editorial board, and a fellow of the Type Media Center. His books include the unforgettable one, Another Day in the Death of America. We reached him today at home in London. Hi, Gary. Hi, John. Well, Obama is a gifted writer. This is something we've known ever since Dreams from My Father many years ago. In this one, he's especially good about his family and what you call small but touching moments. Do you have a favorite? There's some tough and there's some tender. But the... Um... The the tender is the morning that he he's woken up to hear that he gets the Nobel Peace Prize. And Michelle's like, "Who's that?" And he says, "I I won a Nobel Prize, honey." And she says, "That's nice." And then she just turns up and goes back to bed. <laughs> and um, and either Malia or Sasha, I'm not sure which one kind of grills him at breakfast about saving some species or other. Like, you should really get on that, Dad. And you get a sense of a kind of highly functional, quite playful family. But then, I mean, Cher really doesn't pull her punches. And there's a there's a moment where when he's planning to run for the president and the gendering of the kind of politics in this are quite interesting because she's literally left holding the babies and he goes from venture to venture where, Failed congressional bid, the state senate. He's off in um, Springfield. He's at the state capitol all the time, and um, then he decides to run for senate. And then you know, and they're just getting settled. He's been there just a couple of years, and then you know, he just sort of mentions, and of course she knows, and she says, "God, Barack, when will it ever be enough?" It's like you have a hole to fill. And it actually makes you like them both more, really. It's real, um, uh, it's really candid. And it kind of made me want to read her book. I understand you taught a course on Obama and the media uh, shortly after his inauguration in Brooklyn. How did that go? Not well. It was called Reporting Obama. And the idea was, you know, how is he understood? How is he um, uh, engaged? How do the foreign media report him? How do they do race? How do they do gender? This course started two weeks after the inauguration, 2009. They wouldn't critique him. Maybe they couldn't critique him. After Obama decided to put more troops in Afghanistan, the front of time on Newsweek was Obama's war. And uh, one of the students brought it in that week it was out that week and said how would we understand this and i said well in two ways first of all there's the war he didn't support iraq and there's a war he did support afghanistan and secondly now he's escalating the troops he's taking ownership of this war and i heard a kind of kind of bullshit you know from the back of the class and i and i said you know sorry and um this woman said, you can't, you can't pin that on him. Mm. And I said, I'm not trying to pin anything on him. We're trying to discuss and describe and understand. And she, she said, you don't know what's in his heart. 
And I said, well, unless you're a cardiologist, you don't know what's in his heart either. <laughs> We're not talking about what's in his heart. We're talking about what he's doing. And I found this generally among liberals, white liberals. So African-Americans, it was slightly different. African-Americans, I felt it was like, look, he's no worse than anybody else. and He's a hell of a lot better than Bush. So just leave him alone. Like, we're not going there. Like, we never said he was Superman. Let him just be an average president. That will be fine. And, you know, shut up, by the way. Whereas with particularly white liberals, there was a kind of like, there's been a real reluctance to critique him. And that's partly... That's partly understandable because of what he comes in after with regard to Bush and what and what follows him with regard to Trump that kind of, you know, he's a man who could tie his own shoelaces and speak in full sentences, who doesn't do policy on Twitter, is worldly and cosmopolitan and empathic. There is an element with him and Michelle and the kids of kind of Camelot without the castle. It's a kind of, you know, he embodies a kind of, uh, almost literally embodies and personifies a, a place the country might go. So, you know, if he kills a bunch of people with drone strike, well, who are we to judge kind of thing? And I think and I think the best thing is to, to understand him as the president and to critique him, not necessarily just criticise him as the president. And I, I think there's a significant portion of the world, actually, that don't want to do that. There was that fascinating moment which he writes about when Henry Louis Gates, Harvard professor, is arrested for breaking into his own house. And Obama remarks that that was a stupid thing for the police to do. And he notes in his book that this was the moment that where he suffered his greatest drop his biggest drop in approval ratings of his entire career. And it never went back up after that. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling that that one word, that this was a stupid thing to do, which, of course, was a pretty stupid thing to do, that that would be this breaking point for a lot of white people in America. Uh, and he seems kind of a little surprised by that, too, actually, that this would this would be a kind of turning point in his approval ratings. Well, yeah, I mean, you... You get a sense, I got a sense reading the book, that he is always kind of watching himself, watch himself. He's about three people removed. And this is a moment, I think, where he loses that sense of detachment and says something obvious, which he suddenly finds out isn't obvious to everybody. I mean, it's worth pointing out that black, the Black Lives Matter movement happens under Obama's watch. Yes. And that people, it, and it, it explodes almost without reference to him. That when people talk about him as president, they don't talk about how he handled it or what, you know, it's kind of like it was almost on a split screen. And here I'm talking about anti-racists and African-Americans and so on. He had learned how to navigate a certain kind of American racism and i i've always believed that part of that ability was first of all the fact that he grew up around white people and secondly that he wasn't african-american he's black american but he's not 
um, African-American. You could say he was Kenyan-American, if you like, but um, he's not the descendant of slaves, maybe the descendant of slave owners from his mum's side, but he's not a descendant of slaves. And he didn't have either that, that story if you look at one of the things I used to do in reporting Obama, that course you mentioned was compare Jesse Jackson's um, convention speech in 88 to Obama's in 2004, just to look at the difference that Jesse Jackson, um, he talked about kind of, um, we all came over in the same boat. Some of us were in the bottom, some of us were in the top. Growing up in South Carolina, his mum bringing home the scraps from white people. And the stuff he said was true and searing, and he said it brilliantly. And one of the effects is that it made a bunch of white people feel bad. And <laughs> and uh, they're like, well, come on, I don't, I don't want to hear about that. Um, whereas Obama could say, you know, my father came to America, a magical place. Mm. It was 1959. It was like, you know, five years before Shane Freddie and Goodman were killed in Mississippi before Birmingham, but he had access, uh, as does Kamala Harris, actually, to uh, a way of being black in America that didn't necessarily have to evoke its most painful moments. Yeah. And, you know, you work with the story you've got, and he worked with it very, very well, but it was treacherous. What we saw with the, the incident with Henry Louis Gates Jr. was the the degree of treachery and the degree to which he was walking a tightrope the whole time. Yeah. You mentioned that Black Lives Matter began under Obama, of course, with the killing of Trayvon Martin in Florida. And Obama had that remarkable sentence, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. I mean, that was something I never imagined he would say anything like that. And, and interestingly, he kind of, it seemed that he did manage to get away with that. Yeah. I want to ask you, John, did you did you enjoy the book? Well, I was frustrated because, like you, I think we should evaluate him as a president. And, you know, we progressives were very, to put it mildly, disappointed. My picture of him had been community organizer in the south side of Chicago, who then went to Harvard Law to sharpen his, uh, you know, tools. And and part of the book, of course, is he knows, he's a smart guy, he knows how he disappointed progressives. And a lot of the book is kind of explaining, answering our criticisms of him, which of course began on almost the first day of his presidency when he brought in all those Goldman Sachs people to solve the biggest economic crisis since, since the 30s. Now, everybody today, we're being dis discussed right now, this week in Congress, because all Democrats now think what Obama did was too small, wasn't enough, gave too much to Wall Street, gave too much to Republicans. What does he say in defense of, of that uh, to people like us? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can see in the book that we're in his head, you know, that some of those criticisms got through because he's often trying to triangulate his assessment of what he did. I mean, I was intrigued with the stimulus package being a very good example. He's told you need a trillion dollars. Ram tells him you can't have anything with a T in it. <laughs> and so he doesn't push back and say, yeah. but that's what we need. And if we don't get that, then blah, blah, blah. He says, well, how much can we have? Or, you know, how much can we get away with? 
He then goes in search of Republicans to negotiate with and can't find any. And so, and I feel that this happened a lot, that he would end up negotiating with himself first, then seeking goodwill that was never there, and then ultimately producing something that absolutely nobody was particularly happy with. And, and, and a significant amount of cynicism came out of that, I think, uh, and a kind of curdling a curdling of the, you know, hopey, changey kind of message. But I also, did you not just think it was too long? <laughs> and it only covered, it didn't cover the whole term. I mean, it, he's, this is only the first of two volumes, so there's, there's, there's more to come. But he has, you know, he wants... Nelson Mandela's to- Long Walk to Freedom was 617 pages. It covers his whole life, and it's a pretty <laughs> eventful life. I mean, you can say, well, fair enough, there's a big chunk of it where he's in jail, he doesn't do that much, but like... I mean, still, uh, this is the kind of third volume already of Obama's life. And it's 83 pages longer than Nelson Mandela's whole life. (laughs) To me, the other weakness is the task he gives himself is to explain to us what it was like to be in the moment when he was trying to come up with Obamacare. Rather than what, you know, what we would like is looking back on it from the perspective of today when we can see that the question is, could you have done more? You should have done more. Could you have done more? He doesn't really go there very often. Once in a while, he will say something like, I might have been bolder. But that's not the kind of book this is. This is a take us back to the moment. And it takes him a long time to explain what that moment was like for all these different moments. Yeah, I I was struck by his account of a meeting with Wall Street executives where he talks about kind of ripping into them for their lack of restraint, and he says they left feeling really anti-business. And then you read Ron Suskin's account in The Confidence Man where one of the participants, one of the businessmen, the you know, bank executives says... The sentiment of everyone at the meeting was relief. The president had us at a moment of real vulnerability, and at that point he could, have, he could have ordered us to do just about anything and we would have rolled over, but he didn't. He mostly wanted to help us out and to quell the mob. You know, Obama's sense of being tough on powerful people is, I don't know. And um, you do get a sense, I, I got a real sense of a missed opportunity. You know, two years after he won, there was a tea party and uh, he got a shellacking. And of course, the other thing we're thinking about through the whole book is Donald Trump is waiting in the wings, thinking about could he be president? And it, it's fascinating. I I don't think I it barely knew who Donald Trump was when uh, when Obama was elected. He doesn't appear in the book really until almost at the end. There's this fascinating episode. It's during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the, in the Gulf when Trump calls the White House and suggests he should be put in charge of plugging the hole in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> and to stop the leak. And uh, Obama writes that, well, he, we explained to him that, you know, we had competent people who were doing this. Then Trump offered to build a beautiful ballroom on the White House grounds. Obama says he politely declined. And then, like, six months later, Trump is starting with the birther lie. 
It does make you wonder. <laughs> Maybe he made the wrong move on the ballroom there. What do you think? <laughs> the, the bit I was really struck by, um, because my, my son was born the weekend that Obama announced. As I'd been pushing him around in his stroller, people would talk about, like, this is going to be a really wonderful thing if Obama wins for your son. And I would say, why? <laughs> because I, I really did get tired of the, 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 there was a flakiness about the racial evocation. You know, when people say it'd be great if we had a black president, and I would say, what, what if it was Condoleezza Rice? And um, generally speaking, did not go down well when I would say why. And, and I would say to them, look, if they can reduce his chance of going to jail and increase his chance of going to university, then great. There's more chance in this country that my kid will go to jail than he'll be president. So the fact that the one person gets to be president, that's nice for him. I understand it symbolically, but substantially. And there is this bit at the end, which is, once again, kind of quite candid, where he's in Brazil and... He waves at a group of kids in a favela, many of whom are black. And Valerie Jarrett says, she says, I bet that will change their lives forever. And he says, I wonder if that were true. However much it might cause them to stand straighter and dream bigger, they couldn't compensate for the grinding poverty they encountered every day. By my own estimation, my impact on the lives of poor children and their families so far had been negligible, even in my own country. Which I was actually grateful for him stating and it's it is true that he comes in with the country in a massive slump and um axelrod says to him when things are bad people don't care that it could be worse there is that there is that to remember but that you get a sense of of the symbolic nature of what went on but you also get a sense which kind of you know i did i finished the book thinking you're a bit more boring than I would have liked. Like, because he just went on. Well, just because he just went on and on and yeah. on. But that it seemed like an honest attempt to engage with what he had or or hadn't done. Even if at times I felt it was inadequate, well, he's a human being in himself and and all of that. So I'd, I wouldn't damn him for that. But that he did at least try to critique his record, which in itself, I think is probably a rare thing for a presidential autobiography. I mean, I can't wait to see Trump's autobiography. <laughs> Gary Young, he wrote about Obama's memoir, A Promised Land for The Guardian. Thank you, Gary. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 